Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So welcome. This is the first of two Oscar knows special thing situation deals. I don't think we have a really good title for this. The point is that the Oscars are on Sunday night on this show. We spend a lot of time talking about movies. And so we're going to play for you some of the conversations, bits and pieces of those conversations that we've had over the course of the year. But to co-host with me, the official movie star of the Colin McEnroe show, Ileana (laughs) Douglas, who is also an actual Oscar voter, which just takes the whole thing out out of the realm of speculation and into the realm of gritty reality. How how do you vote? Do you like do you have like a punch card with hanging chads and stuff like that, or you just write something down, or is it? Uh, I I get out a dartboard. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It, well, it used to be used to get the DVDs. That was really exciting, yeah. you know. But now you you enter a portal, an Academy portal, in which you w- watch the films on the portal. You know, and then you vote afterwards. But do you like um, do you just vote on your computer or something? Or I mean, there isn't like yeah, some, it's yeah. all it's all on your computer. It's not in the old days. You'd fill it out. It was very festive and everything. But they've de- they've deromanticized the whole thing. But but that's yes. true in every single walk of life. So I don't know. Maybe the first question that people always ask at a time like this is as you then look back over 2022 and the movies that you had to watch, the movies that you had to think about uh, to vote on, I don't know, did it feel like a pretty good year for you in movies? Well, first of all, I think we got we have to talk about the elephant in the room. And there actually was an elephant in the movie Babylon, by the way. <laughs> but the I don't think we can go into 2023 without talking about the slap because to me it's that's what the whole oscars 2023 is upstaged by the slap and i think that i'm so nervous about the upcoming ceremony because i don't know how we get kind of beyond that that moment but uh which we which we can talk about in in a minute but as far as the movies go I think that for me this year, and I said this to you, I sent you a text. I was like, what all the movies this year were almost like an assault. <laughs> and I found myself, you know, three films, Babylon, the Whale, Triangle of Sadness, they all involve, you know, human excrement, <laughs> bodily fluids. There's a lot of movies that were about assault and sexual assault. And it, and I, I, for me personally, I just I found myself in bed watching these films, going, you know, what would Billy Wilder say? Like every movie was so dark and such an aggressive assault, and even some of the movies that I liked, I would have to stop and pause the film, which I've never done before, <laughs> and go check the plot online because I sensed something really, really horrible was gonna was gonna about to happen and for me as a viewer i found myself uh, like so uncomfortable at times watching the movie that it made me kind of question as a you know again as a society where that films are not so much entertainment anymore 
but it, they're kind of a an edge like an education. I I felt you know. Does that make sense? I, no, it totally makes sense. And just to put a finer point on it too, it's funny because some number of years ago, the Academy decided that it would be worthwhile expanding the field of pictures to ten, partly so they could have the more pure entertainment movie in there, or at least a movie that didn't quite tick the boxes for an art film or a film of high artistic achievement. And yeah. now, as you're suggesting, this is kind of the salvation. It's, instead of doing those movies kind of a favor by getting them in under the tent for Best Picture, they provide a little bit of relief from all the vomiting, right? I mean, the, whether it's Avatar or Top Gun Maverick, those are kind of our, our resting places. Yes, and one of the strange things with the Academy is that it used to be you just voted for your top three films, but now you are required to vote for 10 films <laughs> in ascending order. And then they give you a long lecture. This is what I'm feeling as a society, and it's not just movies. Do we have to take the enjoyment out of everything? Like, even voting for my favorite movies is a chore because I'm, I there's a very long lecture that comes alongside the voting telling you to not abstain from voting because, you know for all, all sorts of particular reasons which may be why we get all these crazy kind of upsets in all of the films but I don't understand why I have to vote for 10 films. All right. So speaking of Top Gun Maverick, back in August, several of us gathered, James Hanley, Carolyn Payne, Pedro Soto, for a conversation of Top Gun Maverick. Let's hear a little bit of that conversation right now, and then Ileana and I will be right back. You're team leader up there. Why are you, why is your team dead? Sir, he's the only one who made it to the target. A minute late. He gave enemy aircraft time to shoot him down. He is dead. You don't know that. You're not flying fast enough. You don't have a second to waste. We made it to the target. And superior enemy aircraft intercepted you on your way out. Then it's a dogfight. Against fifth generation fighters. Yeah, we'd still have a chance. In an F-18. It's not the plane, sir. It's the pilot. Exactly. I think it's actually the longest time between sequels of any major mainstream film, which was incredible. But the movie in terms of, I think this movie, A, is superior to the original. It has an emotional heart, which is way better. And the special effects, the writing, the dialogue, the characters, just everything is just so much better. Now, Carolyn Payne, we've sent you to any number of movies that you hated over the last, I don't know how many years it's been, or had you watched them at home. So how pleased or displeased were you this time? Throughout most of the movie, I think one of my biggest complaints was I kind of felt like motion sick the whole time. (laughs) Like, I definitely would not be an F-18 fighter pilot. I I just felt like kind of nauseous throughout most of this movie as they were like spinning upside down in their planes and the way it was filmed, really, I was like, I need a drama mean. But I mean, it held my interest. I didn't fall asleep or have the urge to turn it off and just try to Google what happened because that's <laughs> something that 
happens with a lot of things that I have to watch for the nose. All right. So, James, <laughs> there's sort of a weird thing that goes on. In the, well, there's a lot, in my opinion, of weird things that go on in this movie. But one of the things that happens at the start is that Ed Harris plays this general or admiral or something and he's like all into drones he's the drone lord and he's just basically thinks pilots are just so last year and you know this whole idea that, that the sooner we get rid of these human beings flying deadly pieces of warfare the better and then there's sort of this way in which you know tom cruise's character pete mitchell reasserts the human element here you know and the important humanity of all this and there's a way in which that is kind of mirrored by the actual production of this movie in the sense that, you know, Cruz and all these other actors, I mean, they really, really train for this stuff and they go up in the plane. Sometimes when you see them, they're actually in one of these damn jets up in the air with a, you know, IMAX camera pointed at them or something, you know, in an era where that kind of stuff is also sort of on the way out. You just put Mark Ruffalo on a soundstage in, in Vancouver and then just add in everything else in a bunch of other you know post-production studios. There's a way in which Cruz is kind of asserting. He's a throwbacky guy anyway, right? He doesn't like stunt doubles. He, doesn't, he wants to like really be the guy in the movie. I, I, give me some James Hanley-type reactions to that. Well, I, th- I think that he's actually one of those few people in the industry who actually commands enough money that he can bully somebody like Paramount and actually insist that the movie play in theaters rather than actually go on streaming within 40 days or less, actually, they wanted. And I think that he's been proved right in terms of the grosses, of course. And it makes me think, actually, that In terms of movies that are made with green screens, which is very attractive to distributors and film studios because it's much, much cheaper, I think that this represents something really generational about how people are watching a movie. They really created a visceral sense that I think that those green screen CGI created environments that people have become so used to that now there's a generation of people who can actually see something different. And this really has some different things about it as a result of this sort of almost analog mechanical part to it. Obviously, the CGI is there and is part of it, but I think it's a very different kind of phenomenon. And I think it may be influential simply because of all the money it's made. Yeah, no, I mean, it's sort of on the surface of it, it's a weird decision because not that many people in the audience would have been saying under, under other circumstances, wow, well, I've flown F-18s and it's nothing like that. You know, they <laughs> haven't really sort of captured that. So, I mean, they're doing something else. They're rewarding us, I think, in the way that you suggest, in a different way. We don't know how close that is to an approximation of flying a fighter jet, but we do know that it's maybe exciting in a different and less flat way than we sometimes feel about the, about the CGI. So I think in a way that the movie, the first movie doesn't, this movie at least posits or tries to create the notion of a journey for the, the Maverick character. And so Pedro, the whole idea is he has to, instead of being this kind of elite loner, which he is, I think even at the beginning of this movie, is he like living in an aircraft hangar or something it's just like he's clearly yeah i think he's living at the end of the runway where they're testing the uh the plane at the beginning fixing his even older airplane which incidentally is is tom cruise's own p-51 mustang he owns that plane (laughs) and yeah he's just there alone doing his thing with his old motorcycle but there's a little bit of a different notion here about who this person is Mm -hmm. 36 years have gone by he's still a captain val kilmer's character is now an admiral and maybe even 
bigger than an admiral. You know, he's, I don't know, his credit card gets declined in bars and he's just, you know, there's this this, something slightly, slightly, slightly down at the heels here. There's a way in which an era really is passing him by or he's just getting too old to be the guy that he was, but he hasn't figured out anybody else to be. And so this is that moment where he's going to learn something else. And I guess I'm wondering how well you think this movie kind of ultimately delivers on the implied promise that Maverick, Pete Mitchell, is going on a journey and he's going to learn how to do team building and how to transfer his skills to other people and not be such a big egoistic jerk. I you don't know, know. Go I, ahead. I, one of the biggest kind of complaints I have about these, like, long between kind of reboots that have been happening, like like Mad About You or all these shows where the characters come back 20 or 30 years later is how they're all kind of depressing because everyone's so old and everything's so different. And they're either trying to like be how they were a long time ago or, you know, they're just old and it's a different thing and it just feels sad. And I think that because Tom Cruise is kind of ageless, because I think that was sort of the intent, I... I think this works as this journey in a lot of ways. I, I think it I think it, it pays off. I think they do a very good job of him being rather than kind of old and obsolete. I think it's that he's just kind of more static and there's unresolved things he needs to really get through to be able to kind of get through, you know, the final phase of his life. And I think that they do that really well. And I think that like the opening scenes, you can see that like, people really still respect him. So he's not washed up. Obviously the, the brass always hate him, but that's been him, his, his signature the whole life. But you can see like in the, the control room scene at the beginning, we can see with Hondo, with all these people, like everyone really, really loves him. He's just the guy that's just been kind of doing the same thing forever. And, and he needs to resolve the relationships in his life so he can kind of live his quote best life at the end of the movie. So, Carolyn, I have this sort of theory that nobody in this movie has much reality except for Maverick, that everybody in the movie is essentially kind of refracted through the lenses of Maverick's eyes, that nobody's character is particularly well-developed, and Ed Harris is there just to be this hard-ass guy who wants to convert to drones. That whole idea is immediately dropped, by the way, after the first few minutes of the movie. John Hamm is another hard-ass guy who seems to maybe, you know, convert a little bit along the way. But, you know, once again, not a well-developed character. And I think most of the flyers are kind of like that. Bill Pullman's son, Lewis, plays the kind of nerdy, bespectacled guy whose name is Bob. He doesn't have a cool handle. But I mean, nothing's really done with that. I mean, maybe an exception is Jennifer Connelly, who plays kind of the love interest in this. She plays Penny, who owns a bar, and and they appear to have had some relationships in the past that ended in heartbreak, maybe even multiple times. But Carolyn, even that part, I don't think it's written especially well. I think you could argue that Jennifer Connelly takes it and makes that character something other than just something that is in Maverick's field of vision. I was just sort of wondering what you're thinking about the characters, the acting, and maybe specifically Connolly. Yeah, I mean, I do very strongly feel like this movie, you are not watching this movie for character development or Oscar-winning like acting performances. This movie is clearly just an action movie that has a sense of nostalgia and that weird football scene that looks like an Abercrombie ad from like <laughs> circa 2000. I guess, yes, an argument could be made that Jennifer Connelly delivers the performance with the most heart. I wasn't like wowed by that. And I found myself just not even caring. I had no, I, I was not invested at all in their relationship. 
I think that for me, one of the strongest performances was Val Kilmer. I think that scene with Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer was probably one of the most well done and, and interesting as far as performances go, especially like knowing kind of more into Val Kilmer and his his health struggles and everything and how they made that part of his character. That was interesting. I just felt like, you know, this movie, it's it's shallow. It's shallow. And if you find it fun to watch like cool planes flying on a cool mission and, you know, it's fine on that level. But I mean, I didn't go into it expecting any sort of depth. And it definitely delivered with, you know, just kind of surface level action fun. And I think that that's actually a very strong sort of corporate decision. They're not going to, in a film like this, which is really attempting to reinvent a kind of genre, uh, um, a, a different kind of action movie, and it's going to have certain elements. Like one of the issues is that that they worried about in the first thing is, you know, well, is it just going to draw guys to come and see it? And so, you know, well, they say, oh, well, okay, we've got to have some uh, a woman in it to, you know, to draw some more women into the audience. You know, these are very sort of commercial decisions that get made about a film like this. And I think that it's really... I mean, I found it interesting and entertaining as an action movie, but it's except for that scene with Al Kilmer, which for many reasons is is kind of touching. It really would seem character development would seem to stop the action and actually trip the film up. It's one of those curious things because I mean, I'm always watching movies with the idea that I want to know more about character and I want character development. But in a movie like this, you can see how the thinking would be that, okay, this is going to detract from the attention of an audience that is seeking the next thrill. And the only thing character-wise really is kind of oblique, which is Tom Cruise himself, which is the fact that he can play this part and be in this part after so long in the industry, playing different parts since the original Top Gun and he looks so capable, he looks so good, and he's playing the part very seriously. He is sort of the character, the only character, I think, in the movie that has any significance. Okay, we're going to take a little break here, and then I promise we are going to come back and talk more about the Oscars. So I'm back with Ileana Douglas, the official movie star of The Colin McEnroe Show, and many other things besides. So on Sunday night, I assume that you're not flying out to the coast or something like that, that you're going to be sitting in your beautiful Connecticut home with your animals, including the two donkeys that you've just adopted in order to save (laughs) them from being killed in Hollywood movies, right? Yes. That was a film, again, I I mean, I, I love animals. And I'm not, I cannot, I couldn't watch a movie because, you know, they, it's going to be, I can't watch animal abuse in a movie. I, I just can't do it. And I'm sure it's a good movie, but there's, it was too much. It was, a, it was an assault. But anyway, so now we're going to get back to the slap, which is what we're all on the edge of our feet. I was thinking the other day, 
that Will Smith and, and Chris Rock, in their obituaries, it'll talk about the slap, you know? And I don't think that any of us have recovered from that. I'm out here. Uh-oh, Richard. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. And I'm an Academy member. It's just my own opinion. The The Oscars, what they re represent to me my whole childhood and my adult life is that they were, you know, it was this illusion and it was to honor art. Okay. That's what, that was our fantasy. And so the brain was not set up to watch one man go up on stage and hit another man in the face. Okay. That was the first assault and then have the crowd react like they didn't just see what we saw at home. And so for me, I finally, I, I was thinking about this because I knew I was going to be on the show. And for me, it was like finding out, it was like that moment when I was a child and I found out that Santa Claus was not real. And I felt sick to my stomach, you know, because it's something that we really wanted to, we have so few things that we can actually we know they're fake and we, you know, we know it's dog eat dog and that some people pay a lot of money to get these awards, but they, an illusion was shattered for me personally by last year's award show. And I don't know if we can ever really, really recover. And I'm almost uh, cringing because I don't think any joke we can't on as the you know it's a tired cliche but we cannot unsee what we saw last year yeah I actually over the weekend watched Chris Rock's special uh, selective outrage special where he finally after a year responds to all of this and he does it very brilliantly I know you can't tell on camera Will Smith is significantly bigger than me we are not the same size okay we are not. It's got this guy, Muslim does movies with his shirt off. You've never seen me do a movie with my shirt off. If I'm in a movie getting open heart surgery, I got on a sweater. Will Smith played Muhammad Ali in a movie. You think I auditioned for that part? He played Muhammad Ali. I played Pookie in New Jack City. On the other hand, I think I had the same reaction to you, which is like at one point he, he feels it's necessary to kind of go in to some of the rather peculiar Smith family dynamics and some of the things yeah. that had been going on in their marriage. And I thought, you know, it's not that I'm fussy or prissy about gossip, but I just don't want to be dwelling on all this stuff all the time. It's just I don't want this stuff in my head because I think one of the points you yeah, go ahead. remember, we were invited to a fancy party, okay? And we're all dressed up and we're there. We're having a good time. And then all of a sudden, somebody goes up to somebody else and hits them in the face. Yes. You know, <laughs> and so we were we were invited to a party and we didn't get to, you know, unsee what we just saw. I think that we'll never, that's just my personal opinion. Just don't think we can really recover from watching the violence of that, which was bad enough, 
and then watching the audience, which is our worst fear. I mean, you know, right. I, I was bullied as a child. That's, you know, we've all been in that situation. The The fact that nobody reacted to it, I think, was the secondary part is that we watch the violence and then we watch like oh yeah this is where our society is <laughs> actually Nobody... the, one, one person who reacted to it was p diddy who got up there pretty soon after the slap and he did this whole thing well we're gonna we're all family we're gonna work this out at the gold party you know which is completely untrue a year has gone by nothing yeah, has been worked out and but i think the academy has very complex feelings about this because it was also a moment where the somewhat sleepy uh, you know reputation of the Academy Awards was jolted with a hit of caffeine with this suddenly was this thing that you kind of wish that you'd seen live. I've noticed in their promos with Jimmy Kimmel and John Hamm and Billy Crystal, they're kind of leaning in a little bit to the slap. It's kind of like, oh yeah, that's the slap. That's that's why I should watch again this year. Speaking of which, we just were talking about donkeys and it was really Triangle of Sadness and then oh. and, and Banshees and of Ed Sheer, bad times for donkeys. But speaking of donkeys and speaking of the Banshees of Ed Sheeran, Yes, we talked about the movie in December. Irene Papoulis, Sam Hadleman, and Bill Usman were on. Here's a little bit of how that conversation went. Now, I'm sitting here next to you, and if you're going back inside, I'm following you inside. And if you're going home, I'm following you there, too. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. And if I said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it, but I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was. And I'll say sorry for that too, Colin. With all my heart, I'll say sorry. Just stop running away from me like some fool of a moody schoolchild. But you didn't say anything to me. And you didn't do anything to me. Well, that's what I was thinking, like. I just don't like you no more. You do like me. I don't. You liked me yesterday. Oh, did I? Yeah. I thought you did. You see, you know, Irene, it could be argued that this movie kind of exists in two parts, the first of which is funnier, I think, than the, the second part of the movie. But this occurs, as McPants wants us to point out, eight minutes into the movie, and it does fall like a hammer blow. It's... You know, this is an island where, first of all, there aren't that many people to begin with. You don't have that many choices. Uh, these uh, two men have become boon companions, and suddenly one of them has decided that that's not going to be the case anymore for reasons that are somewhat difficult to articulate, although he, he does articulate them as we go along. But I, I don't know. I, Irene, maybe just sort of begin by giving – I happen to know what your reaction was, but let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, first of all, just listening to that clip again i just the way that colin farrell had the catch in his voice when he said i thought you did i yeah. thought you liked me just made me think about wow how many breakup stories are reflected in that in that little dialogue right there like what can i do what could i do differently what did i do can i change you know and um no i just don't like you anymore <laughs> you know it's it's just so beautiful in a way and it had an it has an interesting kind of comedy to it as I, you know, I agree in the beginning and for, you know, at a certain point in the beginning, I said, wow, is this a comedy? What is the genre of this? But then I wanted, I saw the story as a metaphor for something and I wasn't quite sure exactly what it was a metaphor for. And that 
bothered me to, you know, I'm so much of an English major, you know, that I want to have a takeaway that I can put my arms around. But at the same time, I thought it was a beautiful movie with, you know, like just the the characterizations and the filming and, uh, you know, so much about it. I mean, I'm not sure that McDonough would acknowledge that it has to be a metaphor or that he feels under any obligation for it, for it to be a metaphor. I think there's a way in which there is some kind of parallelism with the Irish Civil War, which is unfolding, but not before their eyes. They can actually hear the reports of, of bombing mm. and gunfire because the island isn't that far off the mainland, but it's not going on there. But in a way, it's going on in a, in a different way. So I don't know, Sam, were you looking for metaphors there or what, what were you uh, seeking and maybe finding in this movie? I watched this with my mother and like halfway through she was like, there's too many symbols. What's up with all these symbols? And I was like, yeah, you're you're kind of right. I mean, I'm not sure if I'm Irish enough to even understand half the stuff that was going on. But I personally thought this was such like a kind of like a, a surprisingly warm exploration of camaraderie and like male relationships and friendships. And I personally understand why some people might be sour on this film in fact like i had a couple friends text me before and be like it's so boring it's so dry you're gonna hate it and i was like oh, let me give it a chance and i don't know i didn't i found it kind of entertaining but i also like tragic black comedies like that's kind of like my thing so i was totally fine with it but yeah i thought it was a depressing fun <laughs> exploration of uh of two guys hanging out that's the answer to irene's question uh, tragic black comedy probably is the answer to irene's question what genre is this what kind of movie is it is it's all those things mcdonough very much deals in that there's sort of a way in which violence is always sitting in a very, very sort of under a very thin floor <laughs> that and, and can erupt at any moment. In this case, a lot of the violence is self-mutilation and self-harm, but it's it's kind of there as a possibility all the time, no matter how much fun or how funny things are. So in, in a way, Bill, this is a great Bill Usman movie, right? It's, it's funny yeah. enough to please you, but you wouldn't have been completely happy if this were just a merry romp, a kind of Ryan Johnson knives out kind of thing. You, you really want it to go somewhere and go somewhere maybe a little dark. Exactly. I mean, the last Mary romp I liked was Schmigadoon, but uh, people were surprised because I'm not often in there for, for just the Mary romp. I think it's a wonderful film. I think it has so much going for it from the really tremendous storytelling, as Jonathan pointed out to us in our emails, to the beautiful, sweeping, isolated landscapes um jonathan did a great thing for us where he he provided us with like a lot of stills that really drive that home how the 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 barrenness of of the scenery fits so well with the emotional isolation of the characters tremendous performances i mean it is mostly about these two men but i don't want to go the whole episode without talking about carrie condon who plays Pyrex's sister, and I think delivers such a tremendous performance of someone trying to figure out whether she can continue to exist in this space with these men. Hey, what the hell's going on with you, me brother? Don't come in here shouting the odds at me in the middle of the day, all right, Siobhan? You can't just all of a sudden stop being friends with a fella. Why can't I? Why can't you? Because it isn't nice. Do you want to share it, Siobhan? No! Right, you. Has he said something to you when he was drunk? No, I prefer him when he's drunk. It's all the rest of the time I have the problem with. What's the matter then? 
He's dull, Siobhan. What, he's what? He's dull. But he's always been dull. I want to say one thing about this movie that I, I think is important. <laughs> you have to kind of have Irish roots and maybe have been to Ireland, you know, prior to 1990 uh, to understand, which is a lot of the things that seem kind of odd, like animals in the house were, would not have been all that odd. You know, dirt floors, pigs in the house, things like that. There's a little donkey who's constantly running in and out of the house all the time. And after a while, Colin Farrell has like a, a horse, a full-size horse in the house. That That's a little odd, but it wouldn't have been super, super odd in Ireland. But the thing that I wanted to make a point about, Irene, is the idea of talk. Talk, it's not that talk isn't valued anywhere else, but I remember going to Ireland for the first time in the mid-1980s and just realizing it's just such an art form there. They're so much better at it. You know, I mean, their small talk is our, you know, really great, colorful, poetic talk. That's just how they do it. So in a way, Brendan Gleeson's character, Colm, is is really talking about something, talking about rejecting and setting aside something that that is among the highest the most prized possessions in that culture. I'm not going to sit around talking with this particular person anymore. And I I think putting that at risk and rejecting it is even more cataclysmic than it might seem, you know, using the standards of any other normal ethnic group. That's interesting. But I didn't understand his actions afterwards. I guess it's not so much that it has to be a metaphor, but that I want it to make sense why, given his, given his whole the whole setup of what he was doing he would do what he went on to do um and i wanted the movie to give me a little bit more about why that was but so do you guys not feel like you needed that you just accepted it no i i think that was kind of part of the whole thing is that like uh, how nonsensical and egotistic his reasoning was like oh this guy's so dull like what do you what, what do you think makes you interesting enough to like be the arbiter of who's dull on a small island off the coast of Ireland in 1923. <laughs> I right. think, like, like, like for me, like his following actions null and voided his reasoning. I mean, I think it's also though a little bit of, you know, I, I being the one, the person here who's representative of this culture, I will attempt to speak for it, but perhaps that's an <laughs> arrogant thing for me to do. But there's a way in which a lot of other cultures have release valves. Like in Mediterranean cultures, I think there's this sense of, okay, yeah, you know, well, let's let's have some, let's make some great food and let's have some food and let's live for today and let's not think too much about this other stuff. Whereas there's a weight to the Irish soul. I mean, there's a, a lot of humor to the Irish soul, but the idea, I've got 12 years left, you know, mm-hmm. so I had better think about what I'm going to do before I die, you know, and apparently what I'm going to do before I die is not like go to Paris or something. <laughs> I'm just going to not hang around with this one person. Uh, and to me, Bill, that's a very Irish thing, too. It's kind of like, you know, there's the old joke about Irish Alzheimer's, which is you forget everything but your grudges. Uh, there's kind of a sense where, you know, there, it's not a culture that's good at resolving a problem like that. I'm not Irish, but that does make a lot of sense to me. And and to speak to Irene's point, I also see it, and, and I said this to you all, as a fairy tale in some ways. And watching it that way, I think I went right into my suspension of disbelief so that I was able to just accept, you know, in a fairy tale, you know, everything stands for something else, you know, just like, you know, Sam's mom talking about all the symbols, or we might talk about the semiotics of it. And so, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to make rational sense. And so I was able to, you know, embrace that 
sense of irrationality in terms of some of the actions that then proceed from, you know, this dissolution of the friendship. There's there's rational sense and there's irrational sense, you know, like psych- psychological sense is there, it could be completely irrational, but at least it would sort of make sense in some psychological mm-hmm. way that I didn't quite see what he did to himself, I mean, you mm-hmm. know, so, but I don't know. I, you know, I, I also kind of like the mystery of that, too. Okay, we're going to take a little break here. Everybody connected with this show is going to slap everybody else, and then we're going to come back freshly slapped and ready to talk Oscars. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So we're back. I'm with Ileana Douglas. She is the official movie star of The Colin McEnroe Show. She is also an Oscar voter. So... You know, yes, a lot of this stuff was pretty challenging. I mean, I liked Triangle of Sadness, but I mean, there was probably maybe a little bit, you know, more vomiting that I really needed to see. But was there a movie that just sort of gave you pleasure that was just sort of a rich source of, uh, of enjoyment for you? I would say I would say the movie that I've gone back to because I've watched it about three times is Elvis only because, again, it's. It's cinematic. It, it feels good. You know, I mean, I, I feel like I have to apologize that I'm from a generation of people that, yes, I would like to just I like to be entertained. I'd like to see some stylish entertainment, move, something cinematic, well-directed, well-acted, uh, took me on a ride, took me on an adventure, thought it was, a, you know, a, again, about an iconic person in our society, Elvis, what he represented. And I think that other, I love biopics anyway, and where other biopics have, have kind of failed in the second act, I, I thought Elvis was tremendous. I love the relationship with, you know, Colonel Tom Parker. And you know, it's interesting, nobody... I don't I don't tend to read reviews, but I I thought Tom Hanks was very I preferred him. He did another film this year, which I was not as crazy about, but I thought he was excellent in Elvis and rather overlooked. Yeah, I think that's either a love or a hate thing. And I actually found him a little bit jarring as Colonel Tom Parker. It's not my mental picture of Colonel Tom Parker. And 
right. doing a little extra reading. I don't even think it was particularly on the nose uh, for for yeah. Tom Parker. But I do feel like you know Elvis is this kind of latent myth in America that that can yes. peri- periodically come alive. And we did a show about Elvis years ago in front of a live audience. We had a lot of musicians and singers, and we had the audience singing Elvis songs. And you just realize, yeah, everybody sort of thinks they know what's being said. If you say the word Elvis. You know, people summon something to mind. It might be his kind of late period look or something, but something, something pops into their heads. But the whole picture doesn't pop into their heads. And I think that's one reason we like the movie Elvis is that, you know, we have this little default idea of who he is. We need to be reminded really who he was and how big and long, although tragically short, that story was, right? Yeah. And I, I just thought he did a wonderful job and, uh, you know, I, I just enjoyed the movie. I, it was a movie. I, you know, I like watching movies twice. And it's the only, I, I think it's interesting that it's the only movie this year that I watched. I said, I think I'll just watch Elvis again or, you know, and again, enjoy, enjoying watching Top Gun. I only saw it once, but, you know, it's just enjoyable. I know that I'm not going to have, you know, fingers thrown at me halfway through the film. <laughs> hot, hot dog fingers, um, too. So one movie that has been in the conversation for Oscars all year long, although you do sort of get the sense maybe some of its stars are fading a little bit from the sky, is the movie Tar. It is about a conductor. It is about a conductor who winds up making some pretty severe personal mistakes. Here is a conversation we had in November with Sam Hadleman, Irene Papoulis, and Bill Usman. You're not into Bach. Mm. Oh, Max. Have you ever played or or conducted Bach? Honestly, as a BIPOC, pangender person, I would say Bach's misogynistic life makes it kind of impossible for me to take his music seriously. Come on. What, what What do you mean by that? Well, didn't he sire like 20 kids? Yes, that's documented. Along with a considerable amount of music. But I'm sorry, I'm, I'm unclear as to what his prodigious skills in the marital bed have to do with B minor. Nowadays, white male cis composers, just not my thing. The problem with enrolling yourself as an ultrasonic epistemic dissident is that if Bach's talent can be reduced to his gender, birth, country, religion, sexuality, and so on, then so can yours. It's interesting for a man to write, and, you know, it's kind of like playing with issues that are usually, or a kind of character that's usually male, and he's like, let's make her a lesbian instead. And so that's an interesting challenge, and I'm not sure that he pulls it off. I think it doesn't spoil much to say that some of the trouble that Lydia Tarr gets into has to do with allegations that she's used her power, her tremendous power, to recruit for whatever purposes, young female musicians who kind of enter her world, at least one of them leaves her world in a state of shattered mental health 
And I mean, she's gotten in trouble for other reasons, including the way she talks back to Max in that particular scene. Although I, I think everything she's saying is pretty much 100% true. So I, I will just hear from the rest of the panel. Uh, Sam, how about you? I enjoyed the movie, the pace. I wish the pace was a little bit quicker, but the actual themes that are being explored here, you know, patriarchal power systems, especially under the gaze of like from a woman's perspective, because it's kind of in the word, but patriarchal systems are, are propped up by men. These, these power systems that allow someone like Lydia Tarr to take advantage of women. That's a system developed by men. So to see this director kind of explore this through Kate Blanchett's view, I thought that was really cool. I think for me, like halfway through the film, I just had this moment of Eureka, like, oh my God, she's a bad person. Like we're watching a movie <laughs> about a really bad human being who just happens to be really successful. And it's funny, Colin, that you think that that, bit in the classroom was 100% correct because that's kind of the story of Lydia. Like she kind of sums it up ironically, like talking about herself being reduced down to these allegations that we brought up. I'm not going to give too much away. I do want to bring up like the cinematography and the shots. Absolutely gorgeous. There was a real focus on sound here as she keeps getting distracted by different sounds and all around. And sometimes they seem kind of mundane, but I think it all ties back to her conducting. But overall, I thought it was a really interesting film. Yeah, it, Bill, to Sam's point, it's a remarkable-looking film. And, and I said it reminded me a little bit of Don't Look Now, the Nicholas Rogue horror movie set in Venice. But there's a way in which Berlin is used with all of its kind of shadows and strange little alleyways and, and odd semi-darkened spaces. It's like a Hopper or, or De Carico painting or something. There's just all these kind of ominous shadows being flung about. you got to love that part of it. But Bill, I'm not even letting you talk about how you felt about the movie. Well, I agree with you about the aesthetics. And one of the things that really struck out to me about the visuals is it really contrasts the beautiful and the ugly, which I think is a reflection of the beauty of her creations and the ugliness of parts of her soul. And I we have to talk about Blanchett's performance. You know, it's one of those films where it really is about this one person. You know, of course there are other characters, but it's it's a the reason it has her name as its title. It, it's it's about her and Blanchett's performance. I think really is Oscar worthy. And in that clip you played, and it's such a great clip, it's such a touchstone of the film, you hear, you know, how, how condescending she is. It's dripping from her voice when she says to Max, you're not much into Buck. And yet, as you say, she's right. Such a key point that she makes to him. If you can dismiss based simply on race and gender, they can do that to you as well. And that's that's such an important part of the cultural moment that we're in that this film really speaks very well to. Like Irene, I have some ambivalences about it. Mine are mostly about the latter part of the film, like really kind of like the last half hour. And I'm not going to say anything that would spoil it for anyone, but it, it goes in this direction I, that I kind of wish they had just ended it before then, not because of length, but really because of the decisions that are made. I just have to say that I don't, I didn't like that scene very much, the scene that you played, because I felt like it was everything for me that I re was resisting in the movie, because I just didn't believe that her, I mean, I loved her performance, but I thought the writing was very 
you know, I mean, I don't think classical musicians are going to disparage atonal music because it's atonal, you know, or just it's just like, oh, who can listen to this music? It's too big. You should listen to Bach instead, which was kind of the takeaway that we got from that. And and I think, I don't know, I just felt like, really, is that how she would talk about it? I don't think so. And so there were some of the conversations that I that I just resisted in terms of how they were talking about Beethoven's fifth and everything. Because there's something about the sort of exaggeration of distortion that I didn't quite believe about her personality. It's interesting that Sam said she was a bad person because I think there is that suggestion there, but the, but there's also, I mean, she is very, 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 very committed to, to her own work and to music and to what she's doing. And she has that, she played that narcissism so well. <laughs> and in that scene is a good, a good indication of it. But, you know, I'm just thinking about whether she's, what is bad and what is the movie trying to say about what is good or bad? Yeah, I think the narcissism, I, I think the speeches don't show the narcissism as well as some of the smaller moments, particularly smaller moments with her mm-hmm. and her her wife, played by Nina Haas, yes. Sharon, where, you know, there's two exchanges that struck me in particular. One of them was, you know, at a certain point, she's in, really in a lot of trouble. And her wife says, you should have told me about this sooner. And and I can't remember her exact answer, but it was like, well, I didn't know how much trouble I was going to get in. And her wife goes, no, we're all in <laughs> trouble now. You don't understand. There's a threat to this whole family. That's why you should have told me. And there's another scene where because she's upset, she's driving very erratically. And so her wife says, you've got to slow down. Either that or let me out of the car. And she immediately pulls over and lets her wife out of the car. <laughs> that yeah. was her solution. Uh, yeah, <laughs> There's one scene where she talks about how the conductor has to be dead center in the stage. Like, it can't be off stage. Like, the conductor is really, like, the head of the beast and how important that is to her. And I, it was like she was the mitochondria of the cell. I, I God, I hope I didn't disappoint my bio teacher. Sorry, Miss Williams. And I think that there's, like, a ton of modern examples you could take. And there's one that's, like, glaringly staring me in the face of who I would compare this cultural moment and this movie. It's, it's kind of Kanye West. It's kind of, like, very similar, where you have this person, this egomaniac heading the ship directing conducting doing crazy stuff away from the music and it finally catches up with them i was like oh this this is a familiar tale So, yeah, you know, people are going to... I think more people may watch the Oscars simply because there was something so unexpected in the form of the slap last year. But I also think there are some... You know, I don't think it was a year with really, really big blockbuster movies that mattered to people other than maybe Top Gun Maverick. But there were some really kind of lovely and fun movies. You know, for me, one of the movies that I enjoyed the most this year was The Fablemans. You know, it was just Uh Spielberg kind of doing that Spielberg thing in, in I don't always love what he does when he takes something that's big and complicated and historical and kind of puts his own little gloss on it. But here, it's his life, right? He's got every right to say anything he wants. First of all, have you seen The Fablemans yet? And if so, what'd you think? I've seen The Fablemans, and I, you know, I think Spielberg is a master director, obviously. It was actually the first movie I saw of the season. And um, although I like the performances, I thought he leaned so much into winsome that it I found myself at home just cringing a bit. You know, it just it just was a little bit too on the nose. Life is magic, you know, kind of kind of things. And, you know, from home, you know, the sad thing is, is that now that we're watching movies 
at home, we don't get to have, you know, again, back in our generation, you know, you go see a movie and then you go to friendlies afterwards and then you'd be able to discuss the movie. And now, you know, the only place we really discuss, have a discourse is online. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit harder to sort of share opinions. And I don't know if these filmmakers would be helped by more I don't know, more sort of opinions about it. it, Is every, is it me? It feels like every filmmaker is making films in a, in a vacuum, you know, like I'm going to make this movie four hours long and I don't care what anybody says. Right. Well, no, the, the, the length problem is a really, really big one. Yeah. I I do want to say, first of all, about the Fablemans, that the only thing that didn't ring true for me, although I think it might actually have happened, like more things actually really happened in this movie, at least according to Spielberg, than we would typically believe. But the thing where the bully sees the movie that the young Spielberg made and it completely affects him and stands him on his head and changes his whole attitude about himself. And he's just tearful. And I thought, well, that's, (laughs) that seems unlikely somehow. Bullies don't change that easily. Um, But, but didn't you love Judd Hirsch? When Judd, the funny thing about the Judd Hirsch thing is, I don't know, what's, what's he getting screen time? Maybe 10 minutes, but anybody who's ever been to the movies is sitting there going, he's going to get an Oscar nomination out of this. Oh, totally. (laughs) Of course. He's got the, it was the Beatrice straight, you know, it was the network. Like, here we go. Oscar nomination. And, you know, and good for him. I love Judd Hirsch. I still think of Judd Hirsch from um, Ordinary People. I just think he he was like the world's greatest psychiatrist. Which he also got an Oscar. I think he might have won an Oscar for that. He he definitely got a nomination no, he, under that one. He, he got a nomination, yeah. but he didn't. Yeah, he didn't, he win. didn't okay. win. But he, he win. yeah, no, he was spectacular in that. And I actually still remember there's a moment where he's talking to Donald Sutherland in that movie, and Donald Sutherland obviously is the father of a a son who drowned in a boating accident, and then b a, a second oh. son who has tried to take his own life as a result of that drowning, and he says something about being lucky and Judd Hirsch looks at him and says so you think of yourself as a lucky man and he says it in such a perfectly neutral way but it just you know it just it's like a fish hook that just yanks at you when he says it too it's such a perfect perfect reading of that line I I think again we have to think of the Oscars and it's okay to it's okay to do this is to think of Oscar nominations as honoring an entire career. Mm-hmm. You know, that's no, that's not cheating or a secret that somebody wins an Oscar as a cumulative appreciation of their career. You know, my grandfather won two Oscars and he, you know, he won the first one when he was 63 and the next one when he was 81. And, you know, although they were both wonderful performances, I I don't think you can deny that they were honoring a body of work. And I I almost think maybe they should have a special they should have a special cat. If we're going to if we're going to be forced to vote for 10 films, (laughs) then, you know, give someone an award for their body of work, you know. Well, they kind of do with the Lifetime Achievement Awards, but I think they also should give, they should, there should be, I think, a category. I mean, there's best supporting, but that is typically, 
you know, I mean, that can be a, a pretty decent sized role. I mean, it can almost be a co-lead can get a nomination in some instances in Best Supporting. And there are these performances that go five, ten minutes and just jolt the movie and then the character's not in it anymore. I think that should be a separate category, just the, like the perfect little thing that somebody did for seven minutes. Yes. We're going to play a little bit. We had a conversation in December featuring Carolyn Payne, Irene Papoulis, and Gene Seymour about the Fablemans. Let's hear a little bit of that talk. The thing is, though, about my new movie is that it's just, it's about World War II, your war. It's going to be like out of this world. I'm shooting on a Bolex H8. Finally, I can use double run film. You know that's six minutes without having How to change the reel. How much did you spend to rent this camera? 20 bucks. But I use my own money. You don't have to. <laughs> and this movie editor gizmo costs? It's a Mansfield 8 millimeter How much? movie editor. 80 bucks. Doggone it, Sammy. A hundred dollars for a hobby? It's not a hobby, Dad. If you spend half the time on algebra that you algebra. spend on these movies, I hate you can algebra. Get... Why are you? <laughs> it's completely pointless. Not if you want to make something. It's not pointless. Geez, Sammy, when I was a boy, I always used to think somebody figured out how to make this. Yeah. This car, that rearview mirror, that directional signal. I want to make movies, though. I mean something real, not imaginary. Hearing that clip again, I was reminded of one of the things that that I think not only buttresses the the theme of this movie, but also Spielberg's whole career, and that is of what use is entertainment? Of what use is fashioning dreams in thin air? And of course, the father, who I, I suspect was forged by the Depression, as were most parents in, of baby boomers, cannot imagine a thing like a movie being made for any kind of use. And I think that that tension is sort of, it's not just with their relationship, but with everybody else's relationship. You know, what are you doing, Sammy? What is this? And I think that all of us who choose a less conventional life for ourselves, particularly in the creative arts or whatever, are are always challenged to say, why are you doing this? You know, and and no answer we give is going to is going to satisfy anybody else who is convinced that that we're making a mistake. But you do kind of understand, and you do empathize, and you do feel the kind of I'm not going to call it agony exactly, but the kind of anxiety maybe that Sam has in deciding, you know, to be a movie maker or not to be a movie maker. You know, Carolyn, there's a way in that there are poles. There, one pole, P-O-L-E, is kind of embodied by the father, played by Paul Dano Dano. And he is an engineer, and he's actually going to turn out to be apparently one of the real kind of groundbreaking engineers in the world of computers and the world that we live in today. He prizes that side of life kind of hilariously. Really, the first thing you see in the movie, Little Sammy is taken to a movie. It's the greatest show on earth, which is... a not very good Oscar-winning movie, and it frightens him. But his reaction when he gets Lionel Trains, which his father gives him, saying, 
the, the engineering on these is superb. He has no interest in that. He wants to actually try to restage part of this movie using his Lionel trains and crashing and stuff like that. The mother, played by Michelle Williams, is the artistic side. And she is a somewhat thwarted or frustrated dancer slash pianist and just clearly somebody with her head very much in the arts. This is an original idea of mine, but these are also two sides of Spielberg. I heard somebody point out today, Spielberg, in, in the documentary about him on HBO, he talks about on Jaws, you know, the struggle between technology and art and technology kept winning. But he's kind of a master at both of them, the technology of movies and the art of storytelling in movies. So Carolyn, now that I've babbled away a lot of our free time, just give me some of your thoughts about all this. I mean, I actually like this movie, which I was relieved about because I'm having a long, hard week. And I was like, oh, no, it's a long one. And what if it's slow moving? Am I going to fall asleep? But it, it really it really sucked me in and held me. Um, and I, I related a lot to the young Sam character because I was that hyper creative child who was just compelled to make art and was making art from a young age and performing and it does kind of define it defines not only you, but then your family and your family's experience in a lot of ways. So I enjoyed that aspect. And I also have a father who works in technology. And I feel like that kind of I mean, we're in a different time now where I was able to kind of grow with that technology. And I like to use that in art that I create. So I, I was interested in this movie on kind of a personal level. I felt like connected to it. And uh so I enjoyed that. And then I just thought Michelle Williams was just so outstanding in this movie. She really gave, delivered a performance that I thought at the beginning, I kind of thought it was like a little bit campy. It sort of came across in this like kind of memory way of how like it had this kind of like cheesy 50s, like a Christmas story kind of memory of how things were. But she really took the character and grew it. And really, I thought her performance was exceptional in this. So... I really did. I really did enjoy this movie, which, you know, for me, that that means a lot. Yes. So uh, I should also say that also in the movie is uh, Seth Rogen, and we can't say too much about his character without doing some spoiling, the always wonderful Jeannie Berlin. There's also a big cameo at the end that I'm not going to wreck, although it's being wrecked right and left, so I'm not going to say anything about it. And Irene, one thing that you and I both kind of noticed was this kind of explosive, I don't know, five-minute performance by Judd Hirsch, who shows up as Uncle Boris, says a whole bunch of stuff that nobody else has really been talking about, says some of the quiet parts out loud, and then just leaves. <laughs> but talk about Uncle Boris if you want, Irene, or talk about whatever you, whatever else you do want okay. to talk about. I actually want to pick up on something that both Jean and, and Carolyn said, too, about the idea of the kid who, I mean, Jean, you said it was the anxiety of being compelled to do film from a very early age. And I think that phenomenon is such an interesting thing that can happen to people sometimes. Like, they're just something that they're compelled to do. And Uncle Boris supports him in that. You know, you have to do that. It's gonna, it could tear you away from your family. But if you have to do it, you have to do it as an artist. And I see so many, stu you know, students and even myself to some extent who maybe have that compulsion but life doesn't really let them, you know, do what Spielberg managed to do. Like no one gives them a Super 8 camera that's really going to help them make the film and then and then get the next piece of equipment and keep going, you know. And so like I see so many advisees, especially in the arts, who say, well, I, you know, I'm an artist, but I that's on the side. I have to major in something else. I can't actually take myself seriously as an artist because you just aren't allowed to do that. And that's what they learn from their parents. And so I think. I love it when people actually are so compelled that they just have no choice almost. They just 
it's anxiety, but it's also joy because they know what they want to do and they can keep doing it. They insist. It's almost like they have no choice. They just insist on keeping doing it. And that's such a, in a way, it's a privilege. And so the fact that, you know, so he had his father who who would have said, you know, without his mother, his father would say, no, this isn't, you can't, you can't destroy the train, forget it. You can't, you can't do that, period. But he did have his mother who supported the artistic side. I think her, yeah, even though she was so narcissistic and, you know, you just don't talk to your kids about your sex life, especially when they're young, you know. But at the same time, she did help him. She she was necessary in cultivating his his art and his skill and helping him with that. So a part of the anxiety that we're talking about, I mean, and this is something that recurs a lot in the movie, is that almost everybody in that family accuses the other of selfishness at some point, mm-hmm. you know, of being selfish. Oh, I mean, even even the father is accused. Oh, you're selfish because you just want to take us away from everything we know just so you can you know, become this big shot in computers and, uh, you know, can't you think about us? And I get that it is such a dominating thread or rift in that whole movie that, you know, maybe it's something that, that Spielberg himself still wonders about. Yes, I am compelled to do this thing that that I can do better than most people. But on the other hand, I still have a responsibility to others. and And that's the bump against which most of most of us, I can say, who choose that pattern and choose that direction are always wrestling with, I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to make anybody unhappy. I don't want to be disadvantaged. And the thing I liked about this movie is that it does get into that without entirely resolving it. First of all, I think it's a great point, Gene. And I also yeah. think it's not resolved in Spielberg's own life. I mean, this movie is, it's not really a big spoiler to say this because people know Spielberg's story, too. It's about his parents' divorce. It's about the the trauma of divorce. Of course, Spielberg himself got divorced from Amy Irving, I think, like, within months of the birth of their son, Max. And then he's gone on to have a wonderful and fruitful, by all appearances, a marriage with Kate Capshaw. But I mean, I think it's, I just wanted to say one thing about this. And so, Carolyn, I'll kind of direct it at you, which is, you know, there is some self-mythologizing that's going on here. In fact, one of the people that I thought about as we watch the young Sammy get older and older and his movie projects get bigger and bigger, they're often under the <laughs> the umbrella of the Boy Scouts for some reason. Mm-hmm. And But he'll have like 40 guys showing up to, to shoot a, a war movie or something like that. And I was thinking of Max from Rushmore, who had these sim- similarly grandiose projects, a character played by Jason Schwartzman. But Max is inherently ludicrous, and he doesn't know that. And there's a way in which Sammy is never ludicrous. He's really good at this stuff all the time. You know, 100% of the time when Sammy's doing this stuff, personal life, a much bigger mess. When he's doing this stuff, he's always in control. He's on top of it. He really knows what he's doing. And, you know, Carolyn, I think that's sort of something that we don't let people do that much, you know, and, and I'm guessing... I said, you know, European directors have these kinds of movie projects all this time about how interesting they are. And that's why Woody Allen made Stardust Memories. But, you know, in a way, I think in America, we're often uncomfortable with the self-mythologizing. And I wonder if Spielberg will take some crap about that. I mean, I feel like he's earned it, right? He's Steven Spielberg. I think if anyone is going to get to self-mythologize and kind of toot their own horn and have a movie saying, like, this is my journey. I was incredible since day one. I think that Steven Spielberg kind of gets to do that. Ridiculous or not. But I think that it's an interesting story because it is inspiring because a lot of people 
don't have that courage to really like what Irene was saying to push through to take to have you might have that drive to be creative, but you're not always able for whatever reason to really commit to that. And I I know that as as a performer myself, I've seen other people who just, you know, they feel too many other commitments, they feel those other pulls. So I think that something like this is great because it helps show like you can you can take that risk, you can jump, you can do it. So I think that there's something kind of nice in that message. And I, I like I said, let's let Steven Spielberg have his grand moment here. All right, I'm back. This is our second day of our pre-Oscars news special, whatever we call it. With me is the official movie star of The Colin McEnroe Show. That is Ileana Douglas, today, forever, and always. So, you know, I mean, I don't know that there are a lot of locks this year, you know, things you just know who's oh, already going to get. What are you talking about? You really? You think, you, think you're, you think it's all locked up already? Uh Yes. <laughs> well, you're yeah. the movie star. I, See, I think well, Kate, I think Kate Blanchett's got it for Tar, but I don't know what else. No, 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 no. no. Oh, no. She's right. up against the, it's everything. It's going to be all everything, everywhere, all at once, you all really the feel that time. Way? Yeah, all all the time. No, I, I think it's going to win in most categories. So when you when you say that, are you basing it on Writers Guild and New York Film Critics Circle, all the other awards that kind of lead up to this, or the buzz? I mean, you know people, you talk yeah, to people. Yeah, you, you just feel that there's a momentum for a certain film. You know, you can just feel that it's in the air because, again, the uh, in, in the Oscars have shifted. Remember, the Oscars used to be about honoring films and movies and now they honor themes and what is politically correct and trends and is trying to be you know that's why it's funny everything everywhere all at once is like this should be the nickname for the oscars for the <laughs> academy awards because they want to be everything everywhere all at once they want to be inclusive and they want you know they want to make everybody happy and and in order to do that, you must forego who gives the best performance or who truly gave the best directing. They just want to make it, a, you know, a party in which like this person, okay, this person's happy and this person's happy and we satisfied this cultural checklist. And, and that's what I believe that the a Academy now is, which is okay, it's not exactly what I wanted it to be. I want the Oscars to celebrate films and art. And I feel that we've gotten a little bit of, away from that. And that's just the way it is. That's just the way society is right now. Right. They're so eager to please. They gave the Best Picture Oscar to La La Land and Moonlight in the same year. <laughs> uh, that tried to make everybody happy. So, yes, well, it turns out that in June, we actually got together, Rebecca Castellani, James Hanley, Mercy Quay, to talk about everything, everywhere, all at once. Let's hear a little bit of that conversation, and then we'll be back. In this world, you were a brilliant woman. 
In your search to prove the existence of other universes, you discovered a way to temporarily link your consciousness to another version of yourself, accessing all of the memories, the skills, even their emotions. Like you with the fanny pack? Exactly. It's called first jumping. I need you to learn how to do it right now. Right now? It may be our only chance of getting out of your life. You know, I've been tempted to say the multiverse is the future of cinema in, in some <laughs> ways. You know, people ask, what is the film about? And they've seen the trailer and it seems sort of over- overwhelming. The trailer has the quality of almost like a superhero movie, but not. It's very fast moving and it's kind of confusing if you're not paying full attention. And even then, it's really very new, very avant-garde, very different. And you have to be willing to, I think, do something which I think is the heart of cinema and always has been, which is taking a chance and letting yourself be swept along by something that doesn't necessarily answer questions or stop for a minute to make concessions to its audience. You have to really take from it what you will in terms of your attention and realize that you're not going to see everything on the first viewing. You're not going to understand everything about it. But no, from my point of view, I mean, it's one of the most exhilarating pieces of cinema I've seen in a long time. You know, Rebecca, he makes a a point that I think you and I in different ways have experienced, although you may not want to go into a whole lot of details about your way. But there's a way in which if you're a little bit tired or a little bit distracted or anything like that, you're going to have a real problem with this movie. I just tried to watch it when I was kind of tired, which is to say I just kind of watched it at any moment in my current existence. But I was like maybe even especially tired. And I, I really at a certain point overwhelmed the, the word that James just used describes me completely. I had a certain point I thought I'm lost and I don't really care that much whether I find my way back I'm going to have to maybe put this aside and come back to it I I know you kind of at least had a kind of night versus day experience with it too yes put down the glass of wine put down your recreational (laughs) cannabis gummies do not attend to this film with anything other than a clear mind Um, I watched the first half an hour last night and I was like I am not doing well with this I don't know how I'm going to talk about this coherently on the nose So I put it aside, went to sleep, came at it with fresh eyes bright and early this morning, and I absolutely loved it. And I completely agree with what James said. You really just kind of have to let it sweep you up. For for me, it was about the first half of the film. And then once I started kind of getting my bearings, and I I can't even say I figured out what was going on because half the time I was simply confused. But that confusion, I think, is part of the device of the film. And if you just let it it wash over you and pull from it, what resonates to you, because I think you can interpret this movie myriad ways. And I think depending on, you know, your relationship, your age, where you're at in life, like you're going to have a completely different read on it. But I personally walked away from it thinking, as James said, this is one of the most exciting films I've seen in a long time. I can't wait to watch it again. And I just really can't say enough about how exciting it is to see. All right. So, Mercy, uh, give me give me your just overall take on the movie. So, Rebecca, I think I disagree. I think maybe maybe the problem with my watch of the show what of the film was that I wasn't funny reading in any way that we hadn't had a glass of wine. See, different takes. Different Very takes interesting. Together. I think I'm really excited for this kind of piece to be rising to the top. I think, you know, one of the biggest pieces that I took away from it was somehow I became very self-critical. I'm a writer. I have been a writer for years. And in that, I thought, man, I would never be able to write something like yeah. that. I, I think in ways that are too linear, 
And even though I think everyone who listens to me on this show knows I am a space connoisseur and I am a space nerd through and through and love interdimensional multi-universe play, I still don't think I would be able to write a piece as well done as this. I guess what I'll do is I'll start with advice for watching this. Mm-hmm. One, come with a completely open mind. Mm-hmm. Do not expect a single thing. The description does not suffice, right? Throw out the blueprints for anything that we've said and anything that we will continue to say, because my just saying that this is interdimensional and multiverse play does not suffice. And I would also say watch it with friends and enjoy each other while you're watching it because you'll have questions. Don't ask them in the moment, just or rather don't expect an answer to them in the moment. Just ask them out loud and come back to it later and enjoy the ride. Right. Buckle up and enjoy the ride because this entire film was a ride. So, you know, one of the things that I I, one of my reactions to this movie, I, I probably am in the camp of people who didn't really love this movie, although there's a lot of things in it that I like. If I look at all the constituent parts of it, the acting is marvelous, the special effects, the camera work. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are incredible for me. The fact that they actually, more than most filmmakers who attempt anything about the multiverse, really kind of almost responsibly tried to deal with the notion of the multiverse. Usually when people make movies about multiple realities, you wind up with sliding doors, you know? You wind up with like like a couple of things. Mm -hmm. Whereas the multiverse, the whole idea of the multiverse is infinite possibilities. At one point, the daughter kind of says this. She's standing outside on the sidewalk and things have gone a different way between Michelle Yeoh and this kind of matronly overbearing tax collector played by by Jamie. Lee Curtis or IRS employee and things have gone a little bit differently and the daughter says it just don't get too excited about it it's just one of infinite possibilities the problem is if you have to load infinite possibilities into your plot, into your film, at a certain point, you do outstrip the ability, at least of my cognition, (laughs) to stay with everything that you're doing. And so, James, I did feel kind of inundated in this movie. I was the happiest when they got to the point where they they visited a a part of the universe where there's no life, and there's just like two rocks (laughs) sitting there. And I thought, Oh, some peace and quiet. Nobody is going to hassle me for the next few minutes. I just couldn't be more relieved. But as an audience member, I felt like I'm not holding up my end of the bargain. James, I don't know what to do about that. Well, I I sort of think that what is happening here is taking the whole art of storytelling into into a multiverse, into a different place. And I think there's a lot of new writing which is beginning to do that. But, you know, one of the things that reminded me, Mercy was mentioning a space, and I was just thinking... When I first saw 2001 A Space Odyssey, when Mm. it was actually in a rough cut, I was just so totally blown away that I didn't, I couldn't answer a single question about it, about, (laughs) and I had known more about it than most people, but it really was something that didn't have any clear answers. It was like something speculative, something very beautiful. You didn't really know where it went. And I find art that takes that tack to be, difficult, but really rewarding. Films that completely take you into that direction fall in the same category as the as as the kind of complex writing that some writers engage in to bring multiple threads together. And I think that that is something that I don't know quite how to describe what is what is happening with the audience, but people tend to consume 
art generally, but film in particular, in very certain ways. There are traditionalist storytelling, you know, like Downton Abbey or something like that, that tells a recognizable story and is kind of reassuring on a certain level or alarming in my case sometimes when I see that. But then you look at people who are really breaking the envelope and and, and really trying to take things in a different direction. And the key to following that is not to be intimidated by feeling you have to understand every aspect of the story. It's not intended to be reassuring, and it certainly isn't. And in the hands of very capable directors here and players who are really up to speed in terms of taking their parts seriously. I mean, even uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's part is, is just like right on the money in a certain sort of small part of the multiverse, which fits into this puzzle. And I think that the more you watch it, if you, if you can, if you can really absorb it rather than sort of trying to pull it apart and and put it into conventional story terms. It just isn't that. You know, the other thing about this movie is I, I could have understood it being a critic's darling, you know, and then maybe having a little trouble finding an audience. Right now it's already grossed $82 million. <laughs> <laughs> it's doing now. Some of that money is coming from other parts of the multiverse. Uh, this is the first, you know. Usually, it's like, how's it going to play in Asia? Well, now it's like you get a whole other bubbles. You got to be able to sell tickets in. But I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about like why people are liking this so much? Yeah, I think reality sucks right now. Um, <laughs> I think Amen. I'm, right. I think that folks are looking for a, a real suspended two and a half hours. You know, a suspension from their worries, a suspension from any concerns, a suspension from reality in all sorts of ways. I think this is ridiculous. I think this film is completely ridiculous. And I enjoyed being in a moment of utter ridiculousness where, yeah, yeah, my my inboxes have 375 emails that I have not responded to yet. If, if you are listening to this and I owe you an email, forgive me. I was watching this film. And while I was watching this film, I didn't regret not responding to anyone's email because there's something incredibly soothing about the underlining message, which... I mean, this was the underlining message that I took from it. I don't know if anyone else feels this way. It's that nothing really matters. <laughs> and that the nature of the universe is that everything is so big that eventually we all just realize how tiny pieces of blank we all are. And mm. in that there should be comfort. There should be a real sense of comfort. And it's what you do with the moments after you realize that, that matter the most. And I think there's something incredibly settling about that message. It's really not that crazy. <laughs> We're not that crazy. A couple of mammals making gravy. Right? Together, you and me, a multi-species team. We're a family. Culinary. Now we're cooking. While nobody's looking. Yeah, we're family. We are back. Time to say some thank yous here. Thanks to Cat Pastor Always, our technical producer. Jonathan McPants is the person who conceives these whole celebrations and edits all the stuff from past shows. And very, very, very special thanks to the official movie star of the Colin McEnroe show, Ileana Douglas. So as we're getting ready here to wrap up. So, yeah, I don't know. When, I think we both have some admiration for the movie Triangle of Sadness. For me, anyway, watching it, I thought, this is a movie that I 
wouldn't expect to. If you described this movie to me and some of the really gross things that happened, and, and maybe even the entire point of view of the movie, I would think I'm not going to like this movie. And and I actually did like it. I don't think it's the movie that really moved me the most this year. That was Women Talking, uh, but Triangle of Sadness. There was something original going on here, although. I guess you could argue the point it's making isn't necessarily super original. Well, I did. Yeah, I thought that the, you know, it sounds like a tired cliche, but it was about something. You were thinking the whole time and the uh, the juxtaposition of a bunch of rich people that are on a boat and it crashes into an island and then how the tables are turned, I thought was really brilliant and interesting and how each person on the ship is is sort of coping and Woody Harrelson I I just thought was really a standout you know he's just becoming this amazing actor you know he's had this long career obviously on television and films but he's one of those people he's becoming like Jeff Bridges where you know where you just look forward to seeing him in a film and you know he's going to do something really interesting and I love the character of Dolly DeLeon and I thought that here's another thing you know it had social media was a component of the film along with like the herding of donkeys this year. Another troubling thing in cinema, and I hope it goes away soon, is that the use, there almost wasn't a movie except for a period film that did not include social media as part of the plot. I I think it's hard to get away from it. It really is the water that we swim in these days. Uh, And in the case of Triangle of Sadness, I think one of the things they do well is to illustrate some of the emptiness of that. I mean, two of the characters are influencers. One of them is a major influencer and in a way that is disproportionate to her abilities, talents. I mean, not that she's a bad person or a shallow person, but she has more of a role in shaping people's behaviors and preferences than she probably is entitled to. And there's kind of a way in which that collapses so easily. And and I thought that actually was a worthwhile message in all of that to sort of say, and it's also very clear there's a moment where they're on this incredibly expensive, super fancy cruise ship, which you, it turns out you don't want to be on at all. But the you know they say, well, we're just here. We, we got free tickets because she's an influencer. You think, oh, this is also a very corrupt system. You know, I think we're watching that at home, but the people that are the social influencers, I feel like it would go over their head. Like, yeah, there oh, yeah. I am. Oh, no, they're not going to watch this and say, oh, my life is a grotesque oh, pant- pantomime. I'm going to stop doing is, this. It's horrible and empty. Right. Yeah, I don't think that's. Was there any movie that you did? Now, did you see The Whale? I couldn't I get through. I, I have not seen The Whale yet. No, I couldn't get through. It just got to the point where it was for me, it was so disturbing that it became, again, not a, not a film for me. It was it was just too much. And so, again, it's interesting, you know, that that's the kind of award making performance. And I thought I couldn't even get through the film. It was just so disturbing. You know, is a movie supposed to be so disturbing that you can't even look at it? Is that is that art? Well, that's I a, don't that, know. sometimes that's an art film anyway. Yeah, just so I'm going to throw right now to the, our discussion of Triangle of Sadness. I do want to say that yes, it sounds some fairly familiar themes. A lot of the second half or final third of the movie is basically 
there's a J.M. Barry play called The Admirable Crichton, which which has got turned into a movie too, which is sort of all about you know a serving man who turns out to be way more useful in a dire situation than any of the rich people he's been working for. And that's exactly what goes on here. But there's some amazing scenes in the movie. Yes, to Woody Harrelson talking about economics with a Russian oligarch while drunk, and the boat is practically pitching over and sinking, and it's all being done by accident over the over the cruise ship's PA system. One of, one of the best scenes in movies, I think, all year long. Here is the conversation we had about Triangle of Sadness. We gonna make it come, come. I think that this is just another example, and I think probably one of the better examples of this sort of burgeoning eat the rich content genre that we seem to be in, which you know, you've got the White Lotuses of the world, you've got Succession, and I think this is doing a really, really nice job of sort of teasing out the class infrastructure without being too heavy-handed with it. I mean, absurd things happen. They're very, like, obviously satirical, but it's very nuanced in its picture of power and who's on top and the striata of social class. But again, it's a really hard movie to talk about. I mean, there's you could talk about how fantastic many of the performances are. Woody Harrelson, as always, is hysterical, a really kind of underrated up-and-coming cast. Yeah, there's some very sharp international casting here. I, my understanding is if we lived in the Philippines, we would really know who Dolly de Leon, who plays uh, Abigail, is. So, Raquel, one of the questions is how much you're going to laugh at this. So, Raquel, I don't know. How funny did you find this? I mean, I find it. I found it sensible chuckle funny. <laughs> Not super chuckle. loud laughing, but yeah. a lot of sensible chuckles. Are sensible chuckles like sensible, sensible shoes? Like they're not flashy, but they're utilitarian? Yes. Yeah. Lots of... <laughs> A lot of those throughout the movie. What I found really interesting, which is something this movie gets that I think a lot of Eat the Rich movies don't get, is that it's not just upper class, lower class, or rich and capitalist class and then working class, but within that working class, within the serving class in this movie, there's a little miniature hierarchy. And I've experienced this from working at a, an expensive resort. There's this real hierarchy between front of the house, public facing mm-hmm. staffs that require a lot of emotional labor. So that's like waitress, that's uh, hostess, that's bartender. And then back of the house staff, which is like cleaner, dishwasher, maintenance guy that are not tipped. And it's more physical labor, more sanitation labor. And the people in front of the house tend to be whiter and prettier and they make more money and make nice big fat tips. And the back of the house staff tend to deal with a lot of the grosser grimier, more physically taxing stuff. And they tend to be non-white. They're more likely to be foreigners, uh, non-native English speakers. And I don't know a nice way to put this, but not as conventionally hot, Uh, (laughs) which is something that was really, really striking in this movie. Among some of the the cast, you've got Paula, who's sort of the head of the servants who wait hand and foot on the guests and then you've got characters like abigail who is responsible for cleaning up the barf after the disastrous seasick dinner scene right well i mean and not to you know hammer a nail too hard into this raquel but i mean one of the you know subtext all the way through this is if you are attractive you can trade that to somebody with a lot more power and resources than you have absolutely and if you have power and resources you can get attractiveness at a scale that your own physical appearance doesn't quote unquote entitle you to right yeah and i thought the 
it was so interesting in the way they do that with gender. In the beginning, Carl's a male model and he's kind of frustrated because male models don't make as much as female models do. And he he's trying to be, have this egalitarian relationship with Yaya, but Yaya out-earns him by a whole lot. She's much more popular than he is. She's got a much better career. And he's frustrated, but then again, it's because in a patriarchal society, female beauty is more valuable than male beauty because who's buying it? Well, it's being bought by sort of powerful men. There's a point in this film where we end up in a sort of matriarchal situation, and that's finally when Carl's beauty is a lot more valuable than Yaya's. Yaya's beauty is kind of irrelevant, and Carl's is actually something valuable. And both of them feel kind of weird about it. Yes, I think that's that's an understatement. But yes, and, and beautifully described as well. So, Sean, I don't know. I think you and I have slightly different senses of humor. And this is a movie that I would have maybe not have expected to laugh at. And I found myself laughing. I think if I was in a movie theater and other people were laughing, I would have been laughing really hard. I was laughing pretty hard as it was. I think you found this funny. And maybe you could say a little bit more about that. I thought it was very funny. Um, and I definitely would laugh. I didn't laugh super hard at home. Uh, but if I was in a theater, I would have laughed definitely harder than I did. Actually, one of Ruben Oslin's other movies, Force Majeure, was remade in America, starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Will Ferrell. And it was like a paltry like imitation of what makes that movie funny and good. I feel like the American version of this would have been so like trying to be in your face and like yeah. casting like a Will Ferrell or something. Like you'll be so big and like, like one of the funny things to me is the scene when the oligarch kind of guy, his wife's body washes up on the shore and then he's like, like mourning her and then he starts taking the jewelry off of like her neck and her fingers and it's like I feel like in that scene it would have been like Will Ferrell like crying like way too hard and like like hamming it up but like it was just like subtle enough to like get it across without like having to feel like hey this guy's a scumbag you know right well you know and and Rebecca to that point I mean maybe the hammiest scene is the one, and I don't think this is going to wreck anything, but uh, is the one where uh, Woody Harrelson, who plays the ship's captain, who is just drunk all the time, from what I can tell. He's n- like never not drunk. He's just in various stages of inebriation. He and the Russian oligarch are having this conversation, for some reason or other, into the PA system of the entire ship, while the ship is foundering, really, on high seas, and other bad things are happening. And they have this conversation that's it's kind of like, you know... William F. Buckley and, and Gore Vidal arguing about, you know, economic systems and stuff. And while you're swimming in abundance, the rest of the world is drowning in misery. That's not the way it's meant to be. And I know you have a good heart in there somewhere. You filthy capitalist Russian pig. The whole thing seems like it shouldn't work. And it kind of does. I I was wondering what you thought of that too, Rebecca. I think the whole middle act kind of has that feeling of like, I can't believe this is working. Like I, there's just so much of it between the like ridiculous 15 minute bodily expulsion events to the following up with this Marxist diatribe over the PA. I mean, it's just this piling on of ridiculousness. And for some reason, I think that's what almost makes it more believable to me. It's just like, this is how rich people behave. Like, this is absolutely something I could see happening and staying with, you know, these characters that are willing to just sort of go down with the ship, despite the fact that they could like make these alterations. I I just thought that the way that it sort of like divided everything up into acts and kept you with different characters whilst, you know, showing how 
across the board bad everyone is. There's no heroes in this movie. There's you could say you root for certain people at different stages of the movie, but I don't think a single person is an aspirational figure here, whether they're at the bottom of the social strata or at the top. And I think that the way that it sort of makes you sympathize with these people and laugh along with them while also across the board being like even, you know, the best intentions, the guy's still a drunk. Like it, it's just great. I really appreciate how nuanced this film is. What comes next will be marvelous. We're back. The show's almost over. I'm here with our official movie star of the Colin McEnroe show. That is Ileana Douglas. So, yeah, you know, we've talked about a lot of movies that are going to be in the conversation on Sunday night for the Oscars. But, you know, you get to see a lot of movies. I think you get screeners sent to you and you just care about the medium so much, the art so much that you see everything. So what are a couple of movies that might kind of fly under the radar and not get awarded on Sunday night, but maybe deserve some attention? A couple of my two favorite films, there was a movie, a documentary called Turn Every Page, which was about the relationship between the writer Robert Caro and his editor Robert Gottlieb. And I, I just thought it was profound. For anyone who wants to be a writer or an artist or is is looking for inspiration, which for me, I, I watch movies because I want to be inspired and that was very, very inspiring just to get into like how hard it is to sit down and write something. And, you know, their artistic, their relationship that they've had for 50 years. I just thought that was a wonderful movie. And I loved the independent film with Aubrey Plaza called Emily the Criminal. I just thought that was a very, very interesting movie. And it reminded me in the realm of, you know, Jimmy Kahn, Thief. I just thought she was excellent. And it's also said a lot about society. I thought that was a very, very interesting movie and an interesting performance. How about you? Well, first of all, I I would co-endorse Emily the Criminal. I I really thought it was amazing. I think we're about to go through about a 10-year stretch of Aubrey Plaza being a very significant force in in acting. She has that kind of quality where you just, you wonder what she's going to do next. You know, you you wonder, she always seems like she's going to explode and then she never does. But uh, (laughs) I thought that was just a fascinating performance. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned it before. For me, I didn't expect this at all, but for me, the movie of the year kind of was Women Talking. I see it as a movie about what it's about, which is a Mennonite community where the women have been raped and otherwise abused by the men and are trying to decide what to do. But it's also a movie about just trying to figure out how, how are we going to live our lives? You know, it, it's really a conversation, versions of which everybody has to have. They're usually not under such terrible pressures as these women are, but we all have to have that conversation. And I thought it also managed to be beautiful without cheaping out on the, the tragic undertones and and subtext. So, so yeah, I would say maybe those are my two favorites of the year almost. And, of course, you are my favorite movie star. You are the official movie star of The Colin McEnroe Show. Ileana Douglas, thanks for talking Oscars with me. Well, thank you. And remember, everyone, you can pre-order my book, Connecticut at the Movies. If you like movies, and especially movies about Connecticut, you can go pre-order it now. And That's a whole show. Free. That's going to be a whole show right there. All right. And for the rest <laughs> of you, enjoy Sunday night. Don't slap anybody. And don't get slapped. Just have a nice evening. Thank <laughs> you.